0: Oh, oh, to Future Primitive, Joanna Harcourt-Smith here with Marjorie Haynes Wallacott, PhD. She has been a neuroscience professor at the University of Oregon for over three decades and a meditator for almost four decades. Her research has been funded by the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. And she has written more than 100 peer-reviewed research articles, several of which were on meditation, the topic that motivated her to write the book that I hold in my hands and in my heart because I've been living with it. And this book is called Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind by Marjorie Hines Wilcott. So let's see, my first question to you will be right in the middle of the soup. Professor, Is consciousness in the brain?
1: (laughs) Is consciousness in the brain? A very interesting question. Thank you, Joanna. And I would say that definitely there is an aspect of consciousness that, of course, we experience through our brain. There's no question about that. But my own research in my own laboratory and through meditation myself as a long-term meditator now tells me that... Consciousness is actually fundamental. It's primary, meaning that we actually receive it through the receptors in our brain to actually experience the outer world through our senses. But even if our brain were not active, our consciousness would still be there. We would still have an awareness without our senses being active, without our brain being active.
0: I see in my notes that uh, uh, early in the book you talk about a TED talk called Focus and Happiness. And yes. I'd love for
1: you to speak to us about happiness. <laughs> I think that's a, a very good point. And this was one, a TED talk by Willoughby Britton. And I really appreciated what she had to say about research that has been done on. Our attention or our focus and happiness and she actually talked about research that had been done to show that when people were focusing on what they were doing in the present moment they found out that they always were happy but when their focus would drift to something else they found that that's when they noticed they were unhappy and she was saying how important it is therefore to actually cultivate our focus so that we can keep that focus on exactly what we're doing in the present moment. I find that interesting because meditation, of course, is all about focusing in the present moment, staying right where you are, focused on one topic.
0: But then again, during the day, can we focus, how can we focus more than we do? Because I notice that concentration uh, can be delicious so can you give <laughs> some ideas about
1: how to give us how to give ourselves that pleasure right and first of all i say for myself it helps to start out with a time of practicing focus in the morning and so i do that actually through meditation and i should say that when you think about what meditation really is it's really about training your mind to stay in the present moment. And the way you do that is you take your mind from its amazing numbers of scattered thoughts about all the things that have happened in the day before and are coming up in the day, and you bring it, for example, to your breath. And then you simply let the mind focus on the breath as long as you can, and of course a thought may come up that draws it away, and you simply gently bring it back to the breath. And if you train your mind in that way so that say for 30 minutes in the morning you give it this mental training practice to stay focused, that will actually help to take that focus into the rest of your day. So I find that when I do that in the morning, the rest of my day seems to go much more easily because I tend to be quiet, I have more equanimity, and therefore I'm able to actually face everything that happens with a true presence where I can actually not get drawn into fear or anxiety or anger, but actually solve whatever problem is, front of, is in front of me from that point of stillness inside.
0: Well, Marjorie, a lot of people have written books about meditation and consciousness, and I would like to ask you in particular, what prompted you to write that book? And also, what do you feel you are giving us in that book that is necessary to read about?
1: So first of all, I think that what was... Unique for me, and perhaps a surprising thing in my life is I grew up as a materialist neuroscientist. And in fact, from the time I was a little girl, I loved doing things like actually exploring the outer world. And one example of that is when I was a little girl, about five years of age, my mother happened to cure, kill a gopher that was in our front yard, making all sorts of tunnels in our front yard. And as soon as I saw that little dead gopher on the ground, I immediately ran into the kitchen and found a little carving knife, and I went out. And I actually cut open the gopher to see what was inside of it. I wanted to really understand what was in the objects and the living beings around me. So I could see that that was probably the start of my scientific career. And I was trained in college once I actually started majoring in biology and neuroscience, that in fact, the material world was all that was there. And every single class I took, biology, chemistry, physics, et cetera, said exactly the same thing. And I experienced only the outer world myself. So it all seemed very natural to me. And in fact, if anyone in my family who was spiritually inclined would start to talk about anything related to spirituality, I would think that they were weak-minded people and I would just sort of brush that comment aside knowing that no, they didn't understand real scientific materialism. But then what happened when I was just about 30 years old, I was at my first teaching position at a university in Virginia. And my sister, who was a meditator, invited me to go to a meditation workshop with an Indian master of meditation. Now, I was skeptical, I was a neuroscientist at that time, but I was also curious, and so I decided to attend. Now, on the first morning of that workshop, they announced that the Swami was going to be coming around and initiating everyone there in the room. And he was going to be doing it by touch. He was going to actually be causing a spiritual awakening in each one of us. Now the scientist in me was very skeptical, but I realized I was already there, so why not put my skepticism aside for the weekend? And besides, I was curious to see what would really happen. Now, when the Swami came around to me in the room, my eyes were closed, but my senses were otherwise fully engaged. So when I experienced what seemed like a current of electricity going from the Swami's fingers into my body, I had a sense of absolute certainty about the event. Now, it's not that I knew what was really happening. To this day, I don't think I can explain it. But it felt like this mini lightning bolt leapt from his fingers to the point between my eyes and down into the center of my chest. And I felt it stopped right in my heart. Now, not my physical heart, but more like a heart than my physical heart had ever, ever been. And I began to feel this energy radiating out from the heart that felt like pure nectar, like pure love pouring through me words came to mind, and they had nothing to do with scientific analysis. I'm home. I'm home. My heart is my home. So here I am, a materialist neuroscientist, and I just had this experience, and I'm thinking, what on earth is that about? And so I also found out that the day after I went home from that workshop, I woke up spontaneously at 5 a.m. in the morning, and I got up to meditate. My habits literally turned around 180 degrees and suddenly without effort, without any will on my part, I was suddenly wanting to get up and to meditate. And I did this day after day after day because I knew that just underneath the surface of my awareness was simmering this quiet ecstasy. And I had tapped it once and I knew it was there waiting for me. So here I am now, a scientist and a meditator, and I think what my book is really about, in answer of your question, is how on earth can these two worlds exist together simultaneously? And so I spent then the next many years of my life, first of all, living two separate lives and being a bit schizophrenic, and then finally saying I have to go back and really do research on meditation and on consciousness to really try to understand what on earth These tell me and how I can make this into one world instead of two separate worlds. And I think many of your listeners might have similar issues in their own lives, that they might be living in a materialist culture, but they've had a spiritual experience and they're wondering, can the two fit together? So the purpose of my book is to say, I now, having done all of this research, believe that we can expand our reality system, our material reality system, just a little bit to include consciousness within it and consciousness as being primary in our world. I'm wondering
0: about this kundalini. Have yes. you had a kundalini experience? Uh, and the answer is uh, yes.
1: Oh, oh. Would I you... definitely have it. And in fact, that very first awakening was a kundalini experience, I am sure. it was. In fact, the way they describe it in many Indian traditions is that the energy, the kundalini energy of the awakened master of meditation actually lights in a certain sense when they are initiated the kundalini energy in the seeker. And that energy then begins to unfold spontaneously of itself as the seeker continues to do spiritual practices and continues to evolve in their life. So that very first experience of feeling the energy go from the Swami's fingers to the point between my eyes, right between my eyebrows and then down into the center of my chest, which we might call the heart center, the heart chakra, um, was literally an experience of the awakening of that kundalini energy. And I've noticed that that has continued in the many years since I started meditating. It's been over 40 years now that I've been meditating. And I feel that energy almost every morning when I meditate in the heart, between the eyes, at the crown of the head. What about
0: this william james that you seem to love can you tell us how he has his writings have inspired you
1: yes yeah, so william james is actually considered really the father of all modern psychology but the humor is that Most university professors in psychology only talk about his very classical works on the brain and the mind and personality, and they don't really even mention that he wrote many, many articles and books on really our religious and spiritual experiences and the fact that he believes that these are very, very authentic and real. And so what I love about William James is that he would often comment on the medical personnel that he would interact with, the doctors, etc., who would say that spiritual experiences are perhaps just illusory or they're pathological or people who have them are neurotic. And he would say, no, 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 these people really have not even studied these in any clear way. And he said, I have studied religious experiences. He wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, where he talks about the spiritual energy that awakens inside of people and that begins to transform them. And one of the things that I love that he said is that the reason that we know it's not pathological is by the effect of the awakening on the person, that it literally transforms their life for the better. And they become much happier people, much more well-adjusted people. And if it were something that were neurotic or pathological, they would actually move toward a pathological or a really a negative state of of mind, and they don't so i really appreciated that this is back in the late 1800s and early 1900s he was reminding us about it way back then
0: and and perhaps the best uh, the best testament to that is bill wilson of alcoholics anonymous who had what he called say miraculous experience or magic experience and then opened up himself to not drink again and so on. So these experiences are truly lasting, can be. I want to ask you, what do you think of this kind of experiences that might happen with the use of uh, entheogenic or what used to be called psychedelic medicines?
1: Mm -hmm. I think that from talking to a number of people who have experienced taking them and experienced beautiful spiritual experiences, I think they can be a doorway into an experience of the higher awareness that we're talking about, perhaps the kundalini energy, this more non-local awareness. Saying that, I've noticed that many people um, – might take something that is a psychedelic drug and have that awakening. And then they find that meditation by itself is enough to actually continue to help that unfold. And I realize also from reading the research on psychedelic drugs that they also have their risks. I've never taken anything like that myself because my first experience was in meditation and I've continued along the path of meditation. I've heard of some friends that have had experiences that were difficult for them with psychedelics. And so my own recommendation is to use meditation itself as a way of accessing this higher power. And I believe that the key is quieting the mind down. I think that perhaps what psychedelics are doing is quieting the mind down just as meditation does, and in fact, One of the things I talk about in the book is near-death experiences. And once again, what near-death experiences seem to be doing is with cardiac arrest, shutting down the brain and therefore allowing this incredible stillness to occur where our thoughts don't interfere with a communication with this non-local awareness. that's really all around us waiting for us to contact it. So
0: um, in your professorial capacity, in your scientific capacity, would you explain to us a little bit how the brain functions and speak about what people talk about, perhaps the right and left brain, and and how that connects to the continuum of consciousness?
1: Sure. So first of all, I think that One of the things we realize about the brain that's very important in our daily life, the reason the brain has evolved the way it has, is that it is really a very important filter to all of the sensory stimuli that are coming into our bodies. And if we didn't have our senses to actually filter this information, we would be overloaded with way too much information coming in from the world and we wouldn't be able to function. So the brain actually has a useful function in ordinary life to help us actually survive really well. At the same time, the brain, because it is filtering this information out, may be filtering out very important experiences that are related to our connect- connectivity with other people in the world, with other animals, and with nature. And so we're very often separated from that experience of unity awareness and unity consciousness by our very own brain. Now, related to like the left and the right sides of the brain, I think it's interesting to note that people have found that our right side of our brain, connected again to our left side of our body, tends to be much more of a gestalt part of our brain that sees things in its wholeness. And it also seems to be related to a general sense of equanimity and well-being. And the left side of our brain connected to the right side of our body is the one that is always analyzing everything, a very analytical part of our brain, and very much interested in... um, There was a particular neuroanatomist, um, Jill Bolte-Taylor, who had a stroke to the left side of her brain to the right side of her body. And she said one of the things that was amazing about that stroke is because it quieted down the chatter of her analytical mind. She went into a state of pure bliss and joy during the process of having that stroke. And she noted that afterwards, as she began to heal... She found that she now at least could remember what that other state was like and remind herself to shift over to the right side of the brain and let that really be the one in control to get back into that state of equanimity, of real joy and peace. And so she said her stroke was actually a beautiful insight. In fact, her book is My Stroke of Insight because it taught her about a side of her brain that she could use more often and then for experience those meditative estate. States in everyday life.
0: I notice that uh, in my awareness, not enough is said about joy and bliss. And uh, from reading your book and seeing you, you seem to be a person who has that experience. Would you put words to those feelings? (laughs)
1: And I think what you're reminding me about is that's really what meditation has done for my life. It has gotten me in touch with that joy and the bliss. It's the heart of who we really are. I think that in many of the in Indian traditions that I know about myself and I've studied myself, they say that our true nature basically has three aspects to it. Being, the fact that we are, mm-hmm. conscious awareness, and also bliss or joy or ecstasy in a certain sense. And I think that sometimes in our current society, we get so fragmented with our thoughts going here and there and so focused on the outer world that we lose touch with that beautiful peace and joy that's inside of us and what i'm realizing for myself is what meditation has done by quieting the mind down is help me get in touch with that joy that bliss and i swear it feels like it's right in the very center of my being radiating out and if i just quiet the mind down there it is and of course that's one of the reasons i meditate every morning because I love that experience of joy, and I love sharing it with other people. I think when we radiate that joy out ourselves, other people radiate it back towards us, and we then have a wonderful interaction where I think we spread the joy exponentially around the world when we are both in that state.
0: And I like the way you translated, uh, there's this story about what wolf do you feed, there's one wolf that's, I don't know, there's one wolf that's naughty wolf and one wolf that's good and which wolf will you feed? And I like the way you translate that about criticism that the the brain's circuits can be changed and you used to criticize your husband and perhaps you haven't done that in 10 years and so your pathways have changed and perhaps
1: his as well. (laughs) You're absolutely right. And I think that was one of the aspects of meditation that my husband really appreciated. And that is because I think that as I was mentioning about um, the research by Willoughby Britton that she talked about in that TED Talk, she was saying that the primary circuits in our brain tend to be ones that are critical and critical of both ourselves and other people. And I certainly was very good at that, being a neuroscientist. I loved loved to really use judgment to try to analyze the world around me, but I also then used it on my poor husband. And I remember one day when he was talking to me, we were out on a walk, and he was just being very, very sweet, not even critical of me in any way, and he simply said, Marjorie, he said, when you criticize me, it really hurts. And in that moment, I could really hear what he was saying, and it touched me very much. And later on, as I began to read one of the beautiful texts from yoga called the Yoga Sutras by Patanjali, there was one particular sutra in there with a commentary saying that every time we speak or make an action that hurts either ourselves or others, What we are doing is actually creating what he called a dust cloud of ignorance that separates us from the light and the joy of the self. And when I read that commentary on that sutra, I thought, that's what I'm doing in each moment when I criticize my husband. I'm literally pulling myself away from the joy and the light of my own self. And I suddenly had a new motivation for stopping my critical thoughts and my critical speech. And I remember on that that day I said, okay, I'm really going to not do that. I'm going to hold back. When I have a critical thought, I'm just going to let it be and I will not speak it. And I remember about three weeks later, my husband came to me and he said, Marjorie, he said, You've really changed lately. <laughs> he said you seem so nice all the time. <laughs> and then I told him about that. <laughs> and and he said, it's amazing how, in fact, when I didn't criticize him, he wanted all the more to be nice to me and to actually be harmonious in our relationship. And so it really helped us both have a stronger relationship and both stay in that place of joy and equanimity. What a lesson. <laughs> Beautiful.
0: So David Baum. Shining forth and opening up to, I don't know if it's pronounced like this, Abhyasa, uh, Mm -hmm. Kashmir, Shaivism,
1: news for us on these. (laughs) So I should, yes, I should say that I first heard about David Bowamon. I was actually at a meditation retreat in India, and the woman was talking about non local consciousness and a unified awareness that we might have and she brought up david boehm's name at that time and i had never heard of him but when i was certainly interested in the whole understanding of a unified awareness or non-local reality i went back home to um, oregon where i lived at the time after that retreat and i bought one of his books and i began reading it and i was amazed first of all david boehm was a student of einstein and he also was a quantum physicist so he has the highest credentials imaginable and he believed that our materialist way of viewing reality was totally wrong and he talked about what he called an implicate order or an enfolded order is what implicate literally means and how the entire universe is connected everything is connected to everything else and this is why he said in quantum physics you can have an electron that is spinning in one direction that is Um, at one place in the um, universe, and you can have another one thousands of miles away. And if you switch the spin on one, you automatically switch the spin on its twin electron that it has been connected with in the past. And we said, you can only do that instantaneously if you have a totally unified universe with everything connected to everything else. And so when I heard that, it really resonated with me. And I felt that What Bohm was really trying to tell us is first of all that we are connected to everything else. So when I hurt one person or one part of the planet, first of all, it's also affecting me reciprocally because I'm connected with that. And also those um, actions ripple out. Now they ripple out in a positive way too. So when I do something good on the planet, it ripples out in a positive way to everyone and everything around me. And one of the things I liked is it explained an Indian term that we talk about very often in the West, which is karma. And what he said about karma is that really, when you do something, for example, and you think, well, um, I said a harsh word or a critical word to somebody else, and it doesn't seem to come back and affect me instantaneously. Well, there's really really no karmic consequences. But he's saying that's not the case, that in fact, it may come back to you many years later in terms of things happening in your life. And he gave examples too, like for example, um, if a person happens to be smoking all of their life and um, then when they are 65 years of age, they suddenly get lung cancer, it's not that it showed up instantly, it showed up after many, many years of their life and then they get the consequences of that. The same way with perhaps not exercising, cardiovascular disease shows up very slowly, other cancerous things can slow up, show up. So he said, Be aware of what you're doing right now because those actions are enfolded into the universal consciousness and they will come back to affect you in the future. And I think we can see that on our planet. I mean, it looks like sometimes we're um, doing something, for example, um, polluting one part of the planet or another, and it doesn't have an immediate effect on us. But now we're watching the more generalized pollution to our planet, and we're realizing we need to really be careful because we can actually extinguish the human race if we don't take better care of other humans, other animals and our planet itself. What about... Um... Kashmir Shaivism. Yes, that is the philosophy from India that I most resonate with and I first learned about after I had that spiritual awakening. And I should mention the name of the Swami was Swami Muktananda. Um, He originally lived in Ganeshpuri, India, and then brought these teachings to the West. And what he said about... His own experience was that when he studied all the different traditions of India, it was Kashmir Shaivism that resonated the most with his own experiences of consciousness. And as I began to then study Kashmir Shaivism myself as a neuroscientist and as a meditator, I had that same experience. And one of the things that Kashmir Shaivism actually says is that it appears as if the universe um, comes from this non-local, consciousness, which they actually, in Kashmir Shaivism we call it Shiva. Shiva is just another word for consciousness, universal consciousness. And what happens then, when universal consciousness says, I want to experience myself, I want to enjoy myself, I want to create this universe, what happens is we get the universe actually contracting down into individual Consciousness of individual people and then into material reality, little by little, through different stages, which are actually called tattvas. And tattva can be translated into English as thatness. So, it's literally like this non local awareness then contracts down into our individual minds and then into our senses and then into the physical world. And the beauty is that it stays in each one of these stages so that you have consciousness within every aspect of material reality. So, even within a grain of sand, there is an aspect of consciousness. It may be crude or it may be coarse, but consciousness is there in everything. How
0: has. Sanskrit added to your research
1: and uh, your practice? I think it's been very important for me, and I'll take even a step back and say that one of my years at the University of Oregon, when we had a a Sabbatical. I get a sabbatical every seven years to go and do more learning and research at other institutions. I said, this sabbatical, I want to go to the University of Rochester because they have a Sanskrit professor there and an Asian studies program that might actually expand my ability to look at neuroscience and look at consciousness from the Western and Eastern perspectives and begin to put them together to meld them. So I went to the University of Rochester and took a course in Sanskrit and then went on to actually come back to the University of Oregon and get a degree in Asian studies on top of my PhD in neuroscience. And when I did this, I continued to study the texts of Kashmir Shaivism, in particular one called the Pratyabhijna Herdayam, which is from about the 10th or the 11th century. And I, began to look at the translations of those texts and what they tell us about consciousness. And one of the things that one of those actual sutras in the Pratyabhina says, and I will just um, translate it um, off the top of my head, it's basically that consciousness of her own free will creates the universe out of her own substance. And also that she contracts then down into all of the individual objects of the universe that we see all around us and when I heard those and read those sutras and translated them I thought that was literally my own experience of the world around me that now have been meditating for 40 plus years when I walk through the national forest for example in Arizona where I live right now I literally feel like the trees are alive with consciousness and I have this wonderful time feeling this communication at a subtle level with them. And in fact, I love talking to the trees and feel like they're smiling back at me in their own way. Now, it's not a human sort of consciousness, but it's nevertheless a real living consciousness and awareness that I feel everything in the universe has. And I realize too that it's it's reciprocal. It's the fact that I am experiencing the tree in it's treeness and it is experiencing me in my own humanness. And, when we can get in touch with that subtle level of reality, I think our experience of the universe is much richer. And in fact, we find joy in almost everything around us because we see consciousness in everything.
0: How would you define developing consciousness in a fetus? And when do you think it starts happening and where does it come from and- what's the story of consciousness coming onto this planet? Oh,
1: that's a wonderful question and of course it's a mystery we don't actually know but we have a lot of clues and so I'll give you a few of the clues. One of the clues I think comes actually from the research by a man named Dr. Ian Stevenson from the University of Virginia. He was a professor in the psychiatry department in the School of Medicine for many years and he was very fascinated by the development of personality in children and exactly what were the um, contributors to that personality development, and he became interested in cases suggestive of reincarnation. And that was because in these children, when they were as young as, say, 22 months of age and just were beginning to talk, they would tell their parents very often about a previous life that they had had. And in this one case, I still remember this little boy, James Leininger, Said to his mom and his dad when he was just 22 months of age. First of all, he's, he started having nightmares, and he said in the nightmares, um, plane on fire, plane on fire, um, little man can't get out, and he would make motions like he was trying to get out of the plane. And what his his dad, by the way, was a fundamentalist Christian and thought that his son was just having nightmares that reincarnation couldn't possibly exist but the son kept repeating these things and finally um he asked the son he said well um who shot you down you know because he was saying I was in a plane and it was shot down and he looked at his dad like with almost incredulity he said it's a Japanese dad and then he told his dad about this whole experience of being in the armed forces in World War II in Japan as an American fighter and having his plane um, basically shot down. And he remembered the name of his colleagues in his unit that he was on. He remembered the name of the um, ship that he was on. It was called the Natoma Bay. This is a 22-month-old. And one time he said to his dad, he said, when the dad was asking about it, he said, before I was born, I was in this plane and I was shot down. So in terms of consciousness coming into the body, which is your question, in this case, this little boy's consciousness was there before he was born, and it came into a new body, but he retained the memory of the consciousness of a previous body. And throughout his youth, he would tell his parents about that person who he was before. In fact, one time his mother said, well, did this little man actually have brothers or sisters? And he said, well, yes, he had two sisters, and he named his sisters from the previous life. And in fact, his mother was able to contact those women and confirm everything that he was saying about himself. So that makes me think that, In many people, at least, the people that can have these memories of a past life, that the consciousness, it has a continuity between lives. And I know that people do research, psychiatrists and psychologists do research on past life regression to see if somehow they can, through hypnosis, help a person possibly remember some of those past experiences. I don't know how necessary it is because most of us don't have those memories. But I think when we hear of people that do have memories, it makes us believe, at least makes me believe, in this continuity of consciousness, that it actually comes with us. And that's why a young child, 22 months of age or even perhaps a little older, can come in with incredible skills that we are surprised that they have because they're literally bringing those skills in with them through a past life. At least that's one hypothesis, the hypothesis of Ian Stevenson and many others.
0: I have to bring back in one of the most delicious comments I've ever heard from a three-year-old. She looked at me and she said, I'm gonna miss me when I'm dyed <laughs> Beautiful, yes. <laughs> Never forget that. So, and also that in your book, you show photographs and you talk about people in India who have particular birthmarks that are markers
1: of their past lives. Exactly, and that was the hardest thing for me as a neuroscientist to actually accept. So I just want to remind you, I am writing this book and I decide to look into cases suggestive of reincarnation. And when I get to the part that Ian Stevenson is talking about in his published peer-reviewed papers where he says, 35% of the children that he interviewed, not only in India, but all over the world, had these birthmarks that corresponded with the mode of death from their previous life. I said, as a neuroscientist, this is impossible. I mean, that was my original feeling is it's like, excuse me, we know that genetics are very important and we cannot have genetics actually be involved in something like this. So I was now dealing with something that goes against modern genetics. Wow. And so what I discovered, though, is that when you look carefully at his research, he has very carefully shown that doing autopsy reports from the previous person that the child said he was, when they go back to the hospital where the person died and they look at the autopsy reports, they find, for example, in one case of this man named Suresh Verm who came back as a little boy called Titu Singh, that there was a bullet wound in his temple on one side of his head caused by Uh, people that shot him, and that bullet wound was found in the autopsy report, and it went out the other side of his head, and in the child, he had an amazing birthmark right at exactly that same point, and a wider birthmark on the back of his head where the bullet would have actually left the head. So what can I say? It's like in 35% of the cases, this happens, and I think we need to actually find a new expanded way to explain genetic inheritance that includes these types of things that have now been shown to exist again and again.
0: Well, that's as amazing as another thing that I learned in your book. That's as amazing as the person who who is basically dead, brain dead, and knows where the nurse put their dentures when they were dead. I mean, that's, that's pretty down to stay, could one say staying down
1: to earth while one is already gone? Exactly, and that's from a study by Dr. Kim Van Lommel, who was a, a physician that did cardiac work in the Netherlands. And he did this most beautiful study, which is called a prospective study. And it's one of the best types of scientific studies where he brought in everybody into this network of hospitals that had cardiac arrest over a period of about four years. And then of those that survived, and there were like 344 people that survived the cardiac arrest, he interviewed them afterwards. And the example that you gave was this one man who said to the people um, when he had recovered now, and he he didn't have his denture, He couldn't find them. And he said to the nurse when she walked into his room, you're the one that knows where my dentures are because you took them out of my mouth when I was in a coma after cardiac arrest. And you put them in this... crash trolley, and there was a little drawer in the trolley where you put them, and I know exactly where they are, and she, of course, could not believe that that was the case because he had no heartbeat, he had no brain function, his EEG was flatlined, and he said his awareness was hovering at the top of the room, looking down on everyone in the room that was trying to help him recover. He also mentioned that he said, I was very concerned that you wouldn't be able to help me recover, and she mentioned, yes, we were all very anxious because... Because it didn't look good for him in terms of his prognosis for recovery, but in fact, he did. So here is a man with no brain activity, no cardiac activity, and he is right there watching everything that's happening to him. I mean, I think one of the things that really tells me is that consciousness has to be primary. It has to be fundamental. If that is to happen, it cannot be that consciousness is created by the activity of neurons in the brain because the brain was flatlined. There was no activity left. So that's one of those examples. that's the best example for me in a carefully done scientific study that says consciousness is fundamental. So who are we?
0: Are we... Are we consciousness or are we
1: intelligence who are we and i think we are all that i think there is a beautiful poem actually a song that is from shankaracharya who is a well-known philosopher in india and the refrain of that song goes, I am consciousness, I am bliss, I am Shiva, I am Shiva. And I think that is a beautiful way of actually saying what we believe we are, those of us who meditate and those researchers out there who are doing this research that in fact, we are We have an illusion that we are this individual body and this individual personality. But when we quiet our thoughts down, we realize that we are connected with everything around us. And we also learn that we have a consciousness that is actually, what I would say, beyond our physical body. When the physical body dies, that consciousness remains. And it goes with us when we die and it may come back with us into a new physical body to carry on our own exploration of this beautiful physical world that we happen to be in excuse me but where does it remain (laughs) where does it remain yes i think that everyone has their own hypothesis about that some people believe actually in those reincarnation stories sometimes the children said that they actually remained aware near where their body actually had died and then they came into a new body um later on after maybe a few years so in that case they stayed in the proximity of the physical world. Other people, of course, go far, far away, they say, to another realm, and they describe it. But where is it? We don't know. And some people say that actually space and time are purely illusion. And that when you look at quantum physics, quantum physics says space and time are not fundamental. Those are things that actually are part of our material reality. So I think that maybe where we are is a hard question even to ask if space doesn't exist beyond our physical world.
0: We are coming to the place where the people who are working on renovating your house would be coming back and <laughs> I'll ask you a double question to end your lovely conversation. Um, you have a chapter near the end that says it's called the effect of one person on another and i'd like you to speak about that and then perhaps you could bring us around speaking of healing and intent
1: yes So to me, that was a very important part of my spiritual journey. And I should say, first of all, in terms of the influence of one person on another, one of the things I was talking about in that case was energy healing. And I taught a course in complementary medicine at the University of Oregon for our seniors in the human physiology department that were going on to be medical students. And in this course, I talked about a number of different types of complementary healing, including energy healing like Reiki. And I felt that I couldn't talk about this unless I actually tried it myself. So I went to a Reiki practitioner, first of all, and I was really aware during my session with her of the sense of feeling equanimity, peace, joy, really throughout my body at the end of that session. And I thought I want to actually see if I could take perhaps a Reiki energy healing workshop myself. And I went to this workshop, and in the workshop, the teacher reminded us that it's not the individual that is giving energy to another, but they're allowing this universal energy to flow through us into the body of the other person. And I remember in that Reiki workshop, as we were being initiated, I literally could feel the energy in my hands as I was being initiated by the teacher. And when I then went to actually practice Reiki on another person, at first I thought, oh my goodness, I'm a scientist. I can't do this. But after my partner actually practiced Reiki on me, and then I went and stood up, I said, this is familiar, I can do this. And I simply began to do the Reiki over the different parts of his body. And I felt literally like I was going into a deep state of meditation. And in that deep state of stillness, that energy was literally flowing through me into the body of another person. And when you talk about this whole point of intention, I think what the energy healer is doing as we each do when we are trying to affect another person in a healing way, is you're giving your strong healing intention that they be made whole, and you're asking that universal consciousness flow through you into them. And I think intention for me is the most important word in my vocabulary right now. When I have that strong intention to have a quiet mind and to also wish well to other people, whether it's through energy healing or simply through my own blessings to other people and to the planet, I am doing one of the best things I can do to actually make this planet a better place.
0: So blessings, blessings and grace. (laughs) Thank you so much to you.
1: Thank you so much, Joanna.